This is the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out, and with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man, staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew, I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. These are the words of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. My name is Emily McKinley, and I have the uh, great joy of uh, joining you this morning, um, making the trek from the south side uh, at our Hyde Park Woodland location where I serve as the pastor and um, swapping pulpits as they are um, uh, with uh, Pastor Hannah, who um, is spending the morning out there getting a chance to um, get to know one another a little bit better. Um, let us pray and uh, kind of ready our hearts and minds for what God would say to us this morning. God, we give you thanks for this time to um, sit in stillness in a chaotic world, to uh, lean into what it is that you might speak to us this morning or show us or challenge us with. And so I ask that you would clear away the clutter in our hearts and our minds so that we might be able to hear you more clearly and respond with um, a kind of boldness and commitment and faithfulness that, um, that you can only well up within us. Speak through me in spite of me. Um, so that your work and your word might be done and heard. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. Plymouth Rock, Boston Tea Party, Betsy Ross, Manifest Destiny. Every nation has an origin story. Who tells it and how it is told, who is included, and what gets forgotten. Historians call this historiography. Lin-Manuel Miranda sang about it, Henry Louis Gates Jr. interviews about it, and Amy Tan writes about it. Origin stories are key for shaping identity, envisioning destiny, and articulating purpose, which means it is important to pay attention to what stories are being told 
and who it is that's telling them. Our passage for today is an origin story, or the continuation of one. The people of Israel call Abraham a founding father, and Isaac is the next chapter. Even that narrative isn't quite so neat, as we'll hear next week. And this next generation doesn't promise to be any more tidy. We drop in on Isaac and Rebekah, who, like Isaac's parents, have grown advanced in their years, but have yet to continue the family name. And at this point, after all the stuff that Sarah had thrown her way with Rebekah, I assume not in relation to the family, I'm inclined to think that the fertility challenges do not solely lie on the womb side, as our presumably male scriptural authors would constantly lead us to believe. But that is not the point I'm making today. <laughs> Isaac learned enough from his parents' missteps and his half-brother Ishmael's pain to know what not to do, even if you are desperate for a family. And so he relegates himself to his favorite position for child-making, which is not missionary, although missionaries did teach it. He got down on his knees and prayed. He prayed as fervently as his spirit could muster. He prayed in earnest, and for whatever reason, uh, uh, our author tells us that God was moved by his prayer. The way was made, and a few months later, we find Rebecca on her knees. She is in agony over the intense movement of her children in utero, and like any first-time mother, is probably full of anxiety, thinking the worst about what is happening inside of her. Rebecca prays desperately, and like a divine ultrasound, God shows her what's going on. They're not just one, but two babies. And these babies who struggle, they will grow to be boys and then men, always at odds with one another, grappling with their roles in relationship to one another in family, in life, in the world. They wrestle up until the day that they enter the world as Jacob grips his brother Esau's heel, a last grasp at trying to assume position as firstborn, that Esau, the stronger, slips out first, eldest and heir to God's promise. As Esau and Jacob struggled with one another throughout their childhood, they hurt each other, inflicting wounds that don't show up in scripture. They weren't brothers, they were competition. Esau was stronger, so Jacob had to be smarter. Esau was his father's favorite, so Jacob was mama's boy. Everyone was in their respective corners, scheming, strategizing about how to pull one over on the other. They weren't making memories, they were formulating stories. Stories about who each other were and what motives they operated from. Jacob constantly feels inferior, smaller, lesser, and maybe even swindled out of what he felt was truly his, thwarted in his destiny of greatness in spite of his second son status. Esau perhaps feels his privilege as the eldest, sees Jacob as a whiny little whip who just won't get over it. He feels strong and powerful and invincible. Layers of self-righteousness strengthened by disappointment and anger that leaves everyone on edge. No one wants to be the fool, and so they kind of lock themselves into these prisons of self-protection, isolated by fear of getting hurt, getting caught off guard, holding on to grudges, and incapable of imagining that things could be different. Jacob is egged on by his own mother to steal Esau's blessing. And this is after he's already taken Esau's inheritance, as we read earlier. Jacob thoroughly robs his brother and in the process severs something sacred in their relationship. He goes where they all sort of had silently agreed that they wouldn't go. He knows it, and so he runs away and finally realizes in his wilderness vulnerability what he had so easily taken for granted in his brother, in his family. There are stories we tell about each other and about ourselves. We justify our actions, 
and villainize others. We gloss over our shortcomings while fixating on their faults. But like the multiple eyewitness accounts of an incident, perspective can make quite a difference. In the world at large and in our personal relationships, we exist among diverse truths, orbiting in solar systems and galaxies of even more multiple truths. And so how do we sort through these truths? Whose truth is more true? Which truth should have primacy? Well, in the wake of South Africa's 50 years of apartheid, the country had a whole generation's worth of violent gaslighting, systemic oppression, and cultural mutilation to contend with. Officially, as a form of governance, apartheid was over, but its legacy and the centuries of colonial mind-effing that preceded it wasn't going away anytime soon, and it couldn't just be swept under the rug like, today's a new day. There had to be a spiritual trial of some kind to lay out, understand, and adjudicate what had happened in people's souls, in the soul of the nation. So the Archbishop of Cape Town, uh, Desmond Tutu, a spiritual caretaker of the region, designed a Truth and Reconciliation Commission to do just that. And as people came forward with their stories, data, and witnesses to what had happened, it became overwhelmingly clear that there, while there may be multiple truths, all truths were not the same. They identified four kinds of truth. First was factual truth, which is about, well, the facts, right? In other words, what happened to whom, where, when, and how, and who was involved. The data truth. Then there's the narrative truth, which is about hearing victims tell their stories in their own languages, not the language of the colonizers. And this validated the experiences of people who had previously been silenced or rendered voiceless. It captured the widest possible record of people's perceptions, stories, myths, and experiences. And paying attention to people's truths not only helps you to understand how the same event was experienced differently, it also helps people to feel heard and seen in a way that was meaningful and restorative. There's social truth, which emerges through interaction, discussion, and debate. It's, it's a space where the perspectives of everyone are taken seriously and put in conversation with one another. And this truth is less about kind of where you end up at the end of the conversation, but more about the process of listening and dialoguing together, what happens when we speak together and create space for that kind of conversation. All of these truths are true in their own right. But how do you cut through them, right? What do you do with them? Which truth should we pay the most attention to? Well, this is where the fourth truth comes in, healing or restorative truth. This is the kind of truth that places the facts and what they mean in the context of relationships between people, right? It's not enough to determine what happened, but to acknowledge the pain that was inflicted and experienced, that it is real and worthy of attention. It's the kind of truth that helps repair damage that was caused in the past, but also prevent future abuse. It's the truth that leads to a future together. And even as the inheritance and blessing unfold for Jacob, there's this deep emptiness in his being. For all of his success, Jacob is haunted by his behavior. And if the story ended there, it would be a tragedy and a disappointment, and an ongoing psychological wound in the DNA of God's people. But it doesn't. Twenty-ish years later, after Jacob has had some of his own hard experiences of what it's like to be taken advantage of, he finds himself in the position of having to face Esau, vulnerable and at his mercy. And he is terrified when Esau sends word that he's going to be coming with 400 of his men to meet him. 
The night before, Jacob wrestles with a stranger. <laughs> Some folks think that this stranger is God, but I wonder if actually that stranger is Jacob's younger self. You know, that he's kind of really grappling with who he had been and what he had done, inflicting a wound that he carries for the rest of his days. In the morning, he lines up, uh, Jacob lines up all his people uh, with the ones he kind of cares the least about in the front and the ones he loves the most in the back. I'm sure that there will be some kind of slaughter. He runs to the front of the caravan, gets down on his knees and bows seven times before Esau with his face to the ground. He doesn't know what to expect, but what happens was definitely not it. Instead of a punch in the face, Jacob is knocked down with hugs and tears and kisses. All the years of animosity, all the pain and resentment, gone. What happened? I think they tapped out. You know, after all the years and cycles of relational violence they had engaged in throughout their childhood, rage, resentment, revenge, repeat, they were done. Joseph was no longer the smug, sneaky weasel. Esau was no longer the brawny, meathead bully. And the minute he saw his brother out there bowing down, Esau knew that things could be different. They were both ready for the restorative truth ready to acknowledge the past, but just put it to rest, ready to build something true, something good, something authentic together. Now, for many of us, family is the most difficult place to disrupt relational patterns. Can I get an amen? <laughs> no matter how old we grow, how many degrees we've earned, how much money we make, right, we instantly fall into our old patterns. He does this, she says that, they get self-righteous, and he starts drinking. No matter how much we may want things to change, it can almost feel impossible to imagine something different. But if we look at Jacob and Esau, we find three practices that disrupted those patterns that they had of relating to one another. The first is that Jacob um, bowed down. He allowed himself to be vulnerable before Esau. He bowed down not one, not three, but seven times. And there was Esau, outfitted with 400 men, expecting at least a skirmish, but instead seeing his brother flat on his face, full of repentance. Instead of defensiveness, Jacob was brave enough to say, I need help, or I need forgiveness. <coughs> and this opened a new way forward of doing relationship together. The next thing that happened was that Esau ran toward Jacob, right? He had the courage to, to pursue a restorative truth, to get rid of the list, the very legitimate list of all the wrongs that Jacob had done to him, right? He, he could have come at him with that, but instead he had the courage to engage the past in a new way in order to pursue a future of reconciliation and healing. And finally, Jacob demonstrated gratitude. He had planned to gift his brother with all kinds of livestock, a kind of apology gift, right? And Esau tells him, keep it. I don't need it. I don't need it. But Jacob insists. And then the gift moves from being an apology to a sign of gratitude. No, please, he says, take it. For seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. 
At this point, Jacob and Esau are at least in their 40s or 50s. And you have to wonder, what could their relationship have been like? What could their lives have been like if they had reached this place earlier? If the bulk of their lives hadn't been spent full of resentment and hurt, stuck in these frozen images of who they had been toward one another? What if they had gone to this place earlier, disrupting patterns and acknowledging their multiple truths, grappling with them honestly and practicing authenticity in relationship? What are the relationships that need to be disrupted in your life? Who are the people that you struggle to be vulnerable with? How do you need to practice showing gratitude or courage to disrupt those patterns? It may be, actually, that the relationship doesn't change much, but I believe it could change you. I was having a conversation with a UVCer a few weeks ago, and they were sharing how their mother, their entire life, had been narcissistic and emotionally manipulative. And this person had so much anger toward her. And as I listened to them share, it was clear that this anger was holding them hostage in so many ways. It was sucking up energy that could be used to strengthen their marriage, build up their promising career, even healing their self. They were frozen, bound up by this anger. And so I asked them, you know, tell me some things that maybe you would consider a gift from your mother, right? Like, what are some things she taught you or ways that she strengthened you? What's a, a memory that you cherish? And they listed off a few things. And I said, well, what if you sent your mother a note once a week for like a month or two months doesn't have to be anything fancy, right? Just sharing that piece, that thing that you, you learned or that you cherish about her presence in your life. <clears throat> well, they didn't like that very much. <laughs> I said, listen, this isn't for her, right? Although she might find herself touched or changed by it, this isn't for her. This is for you. You need to disrupt this relational cycle you have because it is eroding you. Like an acid, it is eating away at your ability to have joy in all of its fullness. Try something different for you. It may be that you'll find other relationships in your life becoming less tense, less agitated, because of course that energy doesn't just stay there with you, right? It shows up in other spaces, other relationships. You might find yourself at peace in new ways. Try something different. Imagine a different story about what could be. Who knows? You might even see the face of God. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that you invite us to do life differently, that you remind us that we are an Easter people, a people of resurrection, that new life can emerge even in those places and spaces and patterns that feel like they are only full of death, Help us to be a people of vulnerability, knowing that it is in our weakest weakness that, you, that your strength can show up. Help us to be people of courage, stepping out in faith, trusting and believing that even if we are not quite sure of the outcome, that you are with us in it and that you will do something within us because of it. And help us to, to be a people of gratitude, people who live with thanksgiving in our hearts, because you help us to once again try and try again, and that you, your aim is to mend us to wholeness of life so that we can seek the wholeness of life of others in this world. 
We pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus, who showed us what that could look like and did so with love. Amen. At this point in our service, we have an opportunity um, to, uh, to respond to what God is doing within us or what we've seen God do around us um, by financially giving. If this is your first time here at Urban Village, um, I invite you to give too if this is a place where you have experienced a little bit of spiritual nourishment. Um, may all of it be done with joy and with generosity. Let us receive our tithes and offerings.
on the side of a, an ocean or in the home of a, a the luxurious home of a wealthy um, elite or a humble home of a fisherman. Wherever it was, he gathered his friends around tables to share life, share stories, share meals, to be together in the same space. And those relationships that be formed around the table began to so threaten those systems and structures that fed off of our anxiety and our fear. They began to feel their power crumble. And they said, we must do something about this man. And so Jesus knew that his time on earth was coming to an end. He knew that his time was limited. So what did he do? But he gathered his friends once more around a table to share a meal. Maybe this time, not only for them, but also for him. And at some point during that meal, uh, maybe there was a lull in the conversation after giving, uh, um, when there was a break in, uh, in the conversation, he took up a loaf, picked up a loaf of bread. He gave thanks and he blessed it and he broke it. And he shared it with his friends and he said, this is my body, given for you, broken for you. Because when we stand together in love and in unity and solidarity together, sometimes our bodies are broken. And in a similar way, he took a cup and he poured out wine and he was grape juice in solidarity with our siblings in recovery. He poured out wine and he said, this cup represents a new covenant, a promise that I make to you that I will be with you. And the, the wine in this cup represents my blood poured out for you. Because when we stand together, when we covenant to be in relationship and journey together, sometimes our bodies are broken. And sometimes, too, blood is shed. Whenever you drink from this, do so in remembrance of me. Holy Spirit, pour yourself out upon these elements of bread and cup upon each one of us, that as we partake in them, we might be reminded not only that we do not have to do this alone, we don't have to do life alone, but that you dwell with us, and that you call us to dwell with one another, to struggle together, to stand together, and to love together. Hear us now as we pray the prayer that your son Jesus taught us so long ago, saying in whatever language or form is closest to our hearts, our Father and mother, you are Awesome. 